Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. They came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were questioning, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But, to, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and they glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Join me as we pray. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you'll help us. We live in a world where things are not as they should be. Please, Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of us can feel it. We know it right off the bat. One way or another, we know that we live in a world where things are not as they should be. Marriages should not end in divorce. Yet many of you have walked through that terrible pain. You know what it feels like. There should not be abuse of any kind. Any kind. Yet there are people sitting in this room right now that have felt the effects. Maybe you've lived with it for years. As Christians, we believe that there should not be racism. Yet many of you have lived through the pejorative shadow of discrimination some point in your life. In this good world that God has created, there should not be sickness, 
There should not be paralysis. There should not be heart attacks. There should not be addictions or car wrecks or pornography or suicide. And yet, many of you sitting in this room have felt the devastating effects, the devastating reality that accompanies those tragedies. So with all the weird, with all the weird brokenness in the world, with all the weird, weird brokenness in the world that we live in, how do then, how do we flourish? How, how do we rise above? How do we honor God? How do we live with joy? I think this fabulous story gives us some insight. Read the story and we watch the Lord Jesus. He walks into a world that is not as it should be. And in this passage, he heals brokenness. And today, I simply want you to follow. Just follow along in the storyline, asking yourself, what must I do? What must I do? Danny Aiken says that there are several things you need to ask of every passage, and I would recommend it to you. A couple of things you want to ask when you read the Bible, you ask of the story. What does this story tell me about God? What does this story tell me about me and my sin? What does this story tell me about Jesus Christ? What does this story tell me I need to know? What must I do? Because, and I'll make this the theme of the sermon, because God is good. Because he is good, because God is good, there are things we must do. What must we do? Let's go to it. Let's make these our points. Here's the first one. Number one, you'll see it in the passage. Number one, we must be clear on our greatest priority. We must be clear on our greatest priority. We set it as a north star. Join me there in verses 1 and 2. Let's see how this story begins. Let's start in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, Capernaum will be the home base right there on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus will go and preach and heal on sort of a ministry tour, oftentimes come back to this, his new hometown, which is Capernaum. Come there to Capernaum after some days, and the text says... It was reported he was at home. You live in a small town, news travels fast. That he's back at home. Literally, it is back at the house. Whose house? We don't know. Probably Peter's home. He's come back for a rest. Verse 1 seems to, seems to say they've traveled for a while. They've come back home, maybe to catch their breath. Jesus has already done all kinds of miracles. Chapter 1 tells us his fame is spreading all throughout. We even remember the scene in chapter 1 where all night long people lined up at the door to be healed, to have demons cast out. Now he's back in town. Verse 2. Verse 2 tells us that the, the people are no longer standing at the door waiting on them to open. Verse 2 says they're inside the house now. Let me read it. <clears throat> Many gathered all together so that there was no more room. They're inside, not even at the door. 
There's so many people now that are packed into Peter's house. Wonder what his mother-in-law is thinking now. Packed into Peter's house. There's nowhere else to sit. People are stacked up at the door, craning their necks, trying to look in. What, what is this healer going to do next? The people are gathered. They're looking for another miracle. They're looking for another healing. And who can blame them? But instead, in verse 2, Jesus is doing something that is even more important than performing miracles. Verse 2, let me read it to you. <clears throat> and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the logos. He was preaching the word. To them. They came for a miracle. What they were getting is Jesus teaching and preaching the word. Now, what does that even mean? What do we know about the content? What do we know about the content? That's what's important about preaching, not the dynamics of how our preacher preaches. What does he say? What is the content? Well, we know a couple of things about the content of Jesus' preaching. Number one, we know that he was proclaiming the scriptures. We know that Jesus was an expository preacher, that he took the scripture, explained the scripture. We know that from the end of Luke, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, walking on the road to Emmaus with the disciples, and he, the Bible says that he started explaining Moses, the books of the law, and all of the prophets, and how those, the scriptures, pointed to him so we know that he taught the scripture second thing we know we know that he called people to repentance and to believe the gospel chapter one opens up with jesus preaching and what is he preaching repent and believe a preacher that preaches repentance we have our model in jesus robert owen says the very first word of the gospel is repentance since i brought it up let's talk about what the gospel is this is what we believe at Hickory Grove, what we believe the Bible teaches, that God is holy, loving, good creator who created all of us in his image. You have dignity because God created you in his image. That dignity, however, has been disfigured by your own sin. Sin doesn't necessarily separate you from God. It makes it so that you are spiritually dead. You are not just far away from God. You are dead in sin, the Bible says. That is a significant problem. That sin not only makes you dead, it is an offense to God. God is angry at sin, wrathful. He is a just God who will punish all sinners so that if you are sitting here this morning as a sinner without Christ, you are under the condemnation of God. It is not me that judges you, it is God. But God is not just a judge, he is also merciful and gracious and loving and kind. And he gives us Jesus Christ, and here he comes on the scene, Jesus Jesus will live perfectly in a way that you and I can't. He will go to the cross, and rem remember that wrath and judgment I mentioned? At the cross, Jesus will take all the wrath of God, all the judgment falls on Jesus, and the righteousness that he earned is given to us, to anyone who believes. God raised him from the dead on a Sunday. We worship on a Sunday because of that. It's a declaration of victory for any person who will turn from your sin and believe Jesus preached repentance and belief in the gospel. He preached something else too. 
We know that Jesus proclaimed himself, that he, he said that he himself was bringing in the kingdom of God. You go and read the Gospel of John, you'll see over and over and over the I am statements of Jesus. There is a certain amount of authority he brings when he claims to be the actual answer in the kingdom of God. Now, this is important for us <clears throat> because in the story, the people came with their own ideas of what Jesus ought to be doing. People come to Christianity with their understanding of what Christians ought, what Jesus ought to do. They came looking for a miracle, but instead, Jesus made teaching the Word His focus. Why? Why is that? Why is that so important for us? Why must we be people that are focused on God's Word? Well, there are two good reasons. If you like these kind of things, there are two ways God reveals Himself. They're called general revelation, that is to say, God reveals Himself in nature and specific revelation. General revelation is, it's a beautiful March day, you go outside, the sun is shining, you see the, the trees are starting to bloom, you think there is a God. General revelation tells us the general knowledge that there is a God. Specific revelation is something altogether different. Specific revelation is given to us in His Word. God has given us His Word so that we might know who He is, who we are, our need for Christ, how we are supposed to live. And brothers and sisters, at this cultural moment in society, the great need of the hour is not entertainment at church, but God's Word at church. The great need of the hour is for men and women that claim Christ as Lord to actually know what he said, to know the life-changing power of God's Word, which is the power of salvation. Look, this book is not just something we stand on. I'm thankful for the slogan, we stand on God's Word. Certainly, we stand on God's Word. This is something we open up and feed on. This feeds our souls. This week, uh, Connie is visiting her mom and dad in Mississippi. She flew out Thursday, took her to the airport, which is an absolute nightmare. If you've been to the airport lately, whew, avoid it at all costs if you can. So took her to the airport Thursday, and um, she, normally Friday when I'm off, and she and I will spend that time together. Friday rolls around, she's not there. I, I don't know what to do with myself. So I'm walking around inside the house, outside the house. I'm filling up dog food things, cleaning out, you know, closet in the carport. And I'm out in the carport whistling, and up the driveway come two Jehovah's Witnesses. I was glad to see them. <laughs> I hadn't been talking to anybody. I was like, hey, how are you guys doing? Come on over. So they walked up. We started talking. And um, pretty soon they said, well, ask me, uh, do you know that most people think that God doesn't answer prayer? I said, can you believe that? <laughs> and they asked me, do you believe God answers prayer? I said, absolutely. Uh, God is good. He's sovereign. And I lift my prayers up under the merits of Jesus. He hears my prayers. And I'm thankful for that. When I start praying, so I gave him the whole adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I said, sometimes if that doesn't work, you can use the concentric circles of your home and going out. 
And uh, then sometimes I'll just use on a walk, I'll use the Lord's Prayer as a guide of how I'm praying. And uh, I said, how can I pray for you guys? And he literally said, you know what? Uh, you just keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> and left, walked down the driveway. Now, I knew, uh, knew those things, just some of those things we mentioned because I've been in, in church with you guys. When we need God's word hidden in our heart. It's not just to have a conversation with someone that believes differently. It's to, to make sure we have a North Star, we have a... Uh, something we're standing on, objective truth in a world that is so muddied. We live in a world where things are not as they should be. We must be clear on our greatest priority to know God. How well do you know God? How, how well do you know His Word? You have the, the Ten Commandments hidden in your heart, the 23rd Psalm memorized. Do you know the Lord's Prayer? Have you been through the Sermon on the Mount? Can you, articulate and, and can you articulate the gospel of God? We must be clear on our greatest priority. Let me give you a second thing we learned from the passage number two. We must uncover our greatest need. Greatest need. What a great story this is. Let's just sort of walk through it together and then maybe just point out a few truths from verses three and four and five. You join me there. You just... Let's just go through it and talk about it just for a moment. <clears throat> and they came. We don't know who the they is. They're unnamed. They came bringing to him a paralytic. The man that is paralyzed, he has four friends, one on either side of this stretcher. Two poles, leather straps, he's laid down on that probably. They are carrying him to Jesus. They have heard that Jesus can heal Jesus is the one that can do miracles. They bring him there. But as you recall, verse 4, everybody has already bunched up into the house. They're packed in the house. The door is covered up with people. There's no way they can get in to see Jesus. That's a flat-roofed dwelling. It's a home, flat roof, with stairs outside, even an axe. We know that Peter went up on top of the roof and is praying. So verse 4 tells us, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they're up on the roof, they removed the roof above him. The him is Jesus preaching. That little phraseology is, they unroofed the roof. That roof is made with planks, and then through the planks you would put down uh, reeds, and grass, and then cover it with a veneer of hardened mud. So when they start digging in the roof, look, if I'm in my house, I can hear a squirrel run across the roof. I'm easily distracted as a preacher. I, I can be preaching on a rainy day here on Sunday morning, and because we have sometimes a leak in the roof, when a, a drop of water can drop in front of me, and it throws me off. Can you imagine Jesus teaching? And some guys are on the roof tearing it apart. I mean, it's breaking up whatever concentration everybody has in the room they're listening to. They tear the roof open, verse 4 says, and once they get it wide enough, they now have some straps or ropes or whatever and are lowering this man on a pallet down in front of Jesus. That's a hard thing to do. you got four guys. I mean, they could have dumped him out on the floor easy. 
Vento Cemetery and watch the casket um, automatically go down slowly. Undertaker drops it down slowly. There's a mechanized uh, way of letting it come down. I, I have preached a funeral before my very first church and had to slide ropes under the coffin and have four guys on either side and lowered the casket down. It's hard to keep it even. Thank the Lord we didn't dump that casket open. I mean, how did they do this? So they dropped the man down in verse 4 and 5. Verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, the text says, Jesus said to the paralytic, Jesus saw their faith, those guys looking down in that hole they dug. Jesus maybe also saw the paralytics. I mean, they all believed. Jesus turns to the man that's laid on that cot. Son, Tekanon, your sins are forgiven. Let's talk about a couple of things. Let's talk about the friends first. What about those guys? What kind of faith did they have? A lot of times I'll hear preachers preach this passage and talk about the faith of the, their friends and that this is about uh, courageous faith. And I, look, I think there is some truth to that. Like it's remarkable. Their faith is remarkable. They have this confident faith. They think Jesus can heal their friend. They have compassionate faith. They could have been with the crowd. Instead, they stayed back with their friend that is paralyzed. They have creative faith. I mean, when they found out they couldn't get to Jesus, they dug a hole. They demolished the house. Verses 3 and 4, those, uh, those guys are left nameless. Verses 3 and 4 are verbs. There are six verbs stacked on top of one another right there in verse 3 and 4. Uh, they came there. They brought with them. They carried this man. They removed. They dug or unroofed the roof. They let him down. You know, I started thinking, faith, faith is a noun, a noun, the faith. The faith once and for all delivered the saints. You go on our website, you can find our statement of faith. Baptist Faith and Message, New Hampshire Confession. We have the Nicene Creed. We have the Apostles' Creed. You can find the Danvers Statement. You can find the Nashville Statement. We have all of these things that sort of help identify our faith. Noun. Faith is a noun, but it lives as a verb. It's action. Brothers and sisters, if there is no verb faith, can there really be a noun faith? I'd love to stay and talk about that. Let's look back at Jesus, verse 5. Look at the tender compassion of Jesus in verse 5. <clears throat> when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, son, so beautiful. Son, your sins are forgiven. That word technon, my child. Your translation might even say child. There is affection there. You have foreshadowing there. Calling this paralytic his son. Here's foreshadowing of the doctrine of adoption that God in heaven adopts us as his children on the merits of Jesus Christ that we were once slaves to sin. We have been made children of God then Jesus does something that confounds everybody there. Verse 5. Verse 5, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, they brought this poor guy to Jesus. 
because he obviously had the worst problem you could have. We don't know what happened to him if he had fallen off a roof or broken his back or born like that. We don't know what happened to him. But obviously, he got a problem, and Jesus fixes a problem that they didn't know existed. The terrible condition that this man had of being paralyzed, that is what got him to Jesus. His paralysis got him to Jesus. J.C. Ryle, the great bishop of Liverpool 150 years ago, J.C. Ryle said that this passage shows us that sometimes affliction may prove to be a blessing to your soul. Sometimes God afflicts to get us to himself. Isn't that what the psalmist said, Psalm 119 or 71? The psalmist said, it was good for me. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Sometimes the pain of life takes us, sometimes the pain of life takes us to the mercy of God. They, his friends, brought him to Jesus so that Jesus would heal him. They didn't know that Jesus was going to save him. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is important. This is not just a statement of fact. This is Jesus creating a condition. A little while ago, I came up here and offered up a prayer of confession, and part of the confession is confessing our sins and stating forgiveness. I am stating what God has done. I don't have any authority. I can't make it happen. I'm telling you the finished work of Christ, what he has done for you in confession and forgiveness. I'm just repeating what I know. Right here, that's not what Jesus is doing, and, and the scribes know it. Here is Jesus actually doing the forgiving. As the Word made flesh, he creates what he commands. And as he teaches the crowd, there are worse things in life than being crippled. Before he ever gets to the man's problem, he goes right to his deepest need. Look, our deepest need is not whatever ailment we have, whatever bruising our souls have taken. Our deepest need is to be forgiven by God. Our sin has so blackened our hearts and destroyed who we were meant to be his justice calls for purity that we don't have. Our deepest need is to go to the cross of Jesus and there find the mercy of God. Look, I'm not denying that you don't have needs today. I'm not denying that. You have needs. We all have needs today. But the most basic need you have is the forgiveness of God that can be yours in Christ. Have you, have you come to him in repentance and faith? Have you trusted that God has forgiven you by his own grace and mercy? Because God is good. There are some things we must do. We must be clear on the greatest priority. We must 
uncover our greatest need, forgiveness. Let me give you a third. Let's keep pushing on this. Number three. We must take hold of the greatest truth. Verses 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. There's a lot that happens here in this passage. Let's start with the scribes in verses 6 and 7. Notice the scribes. The text says, now some scribes were there. Scribes are the religious men. They know the Bible. They've written it down, hence the word scribe. Now some of the scribes were sitting there. They're questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? We already know there's a war coming with the scribes because the people said Jesus, Jesus teaches not like the scribes. Jesus teaches with authority. The scribes show up to see how does this man actually teach. The scribes are there and they hear Jesus. Instead of healing the man, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And look at the things that they question in verse 6 and 7. There are a couple of things to notice in verse 6 and 7. The first one is a setup. There's a setup. Why does this man speak like that? It's the setup to let us know Mark's going to tell us why because he is the very son of God. It's a setup. And then there's some foreshadowing. The foreshadowing, the scribes say, he is blaspheming. Do you see that? Verse 6 and 7. He's blaspheming. That's a foreshadowing to chapter 14 when Jesus will be nailed to the cross and the major accusation is he's a blasphemer. And then there's irony. Irony, because the scribes say, who can forgive sins but God alone? It's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer, and the obvious answer is nobody can do it but God. They didn't know that they were actually declaring more truth than they would ever know, declaring, yes, Jesus is God. It's like when Pilate, when he crucified Jesus and he put that plaque over Jesus' head that said, Jesus Christ the king of the Jews, he preached more gospel than he ever knew. Don't let that be you as a long-time church goer. Jesus speaks in verses 8, 9, and 10. And when he does, the veil is being lifted up from the power of Jesus. This, is, this isn't just a man with a miracle-working power. Let me read it and point out a couple of things. Let us know this is the second person of the Trinity. And immediately, verse 8, join me there. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and take up your bed and walk? But that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, go home couple of things we have here. One, we see the, the omniscience of Jesus. If you'd like to write words down, omniscience, omniscience. He knows, doesn't he? Those scribes didn't say it out loud. They thought it in their hearts and Jesus looked right into them. He knows. He knows the motivations of our hearts. We also see the omnipotence in verse 10 and 11 that he actually does omnipotence, all-powerful, that he actually does heal the paralytic. I mean, he tells that man to get up and walk. Verse 12, he gets up and walk. He's been laid on a, that cot who knows how long. I can't even do that in the morning. 
when I get up out of bed, if I've been laying in the bed for six or seven hours, sleeping, I don't get up like that guy did. There's no atrophy in his muscles. He's, he is healed completely. I can walk down the hall. I live in an old house, wood floor. I walk down the hall, and the floor is creaking, and so are my joints. It's like a symphony. Not this guy. He gets right up out of bed. Jesus just heals him completely, the omnipotence of Jesus. And then you see the sovereignty of Jesus. Verse 10, here it comes. So that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins here on earth. Son of Man. Jesus reaches over into the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, the description of the one coming that will be the deliverer, the Son of Man. When you read the New Testament, there are three titles that are primary for Jesus. The most popular is Lord. You see it the most. Then you'll see Christ second. And the third in line is Son of Man, used 80 times in the New Testament. And 78 times it is Jesus talking about himself, Son of Man. That he actually does and actually is who he says. He is. If that's the case, then it runs me right into my fourth point. I'll try to bring it home with number four. If that's the case, if he actually is the Son of God, if he is who he said he is, number four, then we must submit to his great authority. I want to go back and look um, at why, why did Jesus heal the paralytic? Is it because he felt sorry for him? Join me there, verse 9 and following. <clears throat> Jesus says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. It's right there in verse 10. The purpose of the physical healing of the man that was paralyzed was to show that Jesus actually has the authority to forgive sins. You see, he did, he did what they could see to confirm that he can do what they cannot see. And the worst, the worst secret, the deepest pain, the most shameful problems, those things that can't be seen can be forgiven by Jesus. Today, Jesus will forgive, but we must yield to his great authority as Lord. We come to the cross and we trust what he has done for us. Christ will take and heal your soul. Look, because God is good, there are things we must do. We must be clear on our greatest priority. We must uncover our greatest need, forgiveness. We must take hold of the greatest truth that Jesus is the forgiver, the Son of God. We must submit to the great authority that Christ is Lord. And since it's March the 5th, I'll give you... a. A fifth point, number five. We must join the greatest celebration. I'll just close it at verse 12. See it, verse 12? 
The paralyzed man, he rose immediately, he picked up his bed, and he went out before them all. So they've made a hole now for this man, this crowded house. They've gotten out of the doorway. He's walking out with his mat in his hands. And the text says that they were all amazed. And finally, people speak. Nobody's spoken yet. Twelve verses. Nobody has said a word except Jesus. And here, verse 12, they are amazed. They glorified God. They said, we never saw anything like this. We must join the greatest celebration, giving glory to God and marveling at his saving power. The lame are healed, and the people respond, rejoicing in the, the love and the forgiveness and the power and the restoration and the healing that God gives his people in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this world is not as it should be, but God is good, and I want you to trust him in Jesus. Would you join me as we close together in a word of prayer with your heads bowed this morning? As we go to the Lord in a moment or two of prayer, maybe there's someone you want to pray for. This morning we're going to sing the last worship song, and if you'd like to come forward and pray, we'd invite you to do that. Pastors will be down here. Maybe you'd like to come and talk to a pastor about giving your life to Christ, or maybe there's some sin you're battling and you want to talk it through and ask someone to, to press you toward Christ, to pray for you. And maybe you've never repented of your sins fully and given your life to Christ and been transformed by the grace of God to be forgiven and called a son or a daughter of God. We'd like to talk to you about that. This morning as we sing, we'll invite you to come forward. Father, thank you for this beautiful picture of the saving power of Jesus. Apply it to our hearts. Lord, apply it to your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing together?